This episode of ICU Rounds is dedicated to the topic of pediatric burn care. Now we've talked previously about uh, burn patients and some of the physiological challenges in providing burn care to those patients, but it's important to realize that about 20% of burn victims treated at a burn center are pediatric patients. Large numbers, and the vast majority of patients, uh, particularly uh, with pediatric burns, are not treated at burn centers, but treated in local emergency departments, pediatricians' offices, and primary care providers. It's my objective with this podcast to provide you with some information on how we approach those patients, and what patients are certainly appropriate for referral to uh, burn centers and burn surgeons. You would typically think that we're only interested in perhaps the the biggest and largest burns, but a lot of what we've learned in caring for the largest and the most critical burns, we've been able to improve the quality of life uh, and the outcomes of patients with even the smallest burns. I'm actually preparing this podcast in preparation for a talk tomorrow to our pediatric emergency department at Vanderbilt. And as often what I do with these podcasts is that I use them as archive teaching files for our residents to go back to and refer to at a later date. The incidence of people who have burn injuries are about estimated to be roughly 2 million patients a year. And that's a very soft number depending on what source of data you're looking at. I, I personally believe it's going to be much larger. In most patients um, with burn injuries, particularly when you're looking at all, uh, all patients regardless of age, things such as arson, defective heating, manufacturing of illegal drugs. But in the pediatric patient population, one of the big things we need to be concerned about is with child abuse. And there are some myths about burns. Some of those burns are that their myths are uh, uh, that some burns are minor. And what my patients and what my residents heard me say many times is that there are big burns, there are small burns, but there are no minor burns. And what I mean by that is that you can have a burn that's covering 20 or 30 percent of your body and you certainly can see that that is a if not a life-threatening injury but potentially a limb-threatening injury or an injury that will result in significant pain and suffering to the patient, significant scars and perhaps loss of mobility or range of motion. Anytime someone gets a burn there's certainly a risk for scarring and that can be very traumatic as well as dramatic uh, for not only a child but parents uh, when a young child gets burned. But also small scars can develop in very highly functional areas, for instance the back of the hand or the antecubital fossa or the shoulder or the neck and those scars can typically result in contraction and decrease the range of motion of the affected area. The best example that I would use is if you take your hand and just open and close your right hand and you can feel how it opens and closes very easily. But then if you take your thumb and just push some of that excess skin on the back of your hand towards your wrist and then go ahead and try to make that fist again, you can clearly see that there's a tightness uh, in, when you go to make that fist. And a small burn of your hand can result in tightness and loss of range. So burn is a multimodal problem. The other uh, huge misconception about burn injuries is that it's just an injury to the skin. 
Nothing could be more further from the truth. We know that with large burns that we see a myocardial stunning. We see significant changes in the cardiovascular and cardiopulmonary uh, physiology as well as nutritional and immunological function. So it's, it is a systemic injury of, of pretty significant magnitude. In fact, when we talk about the multimodal or the multi-system nature of the injury, uh, we've talked about some of the pulmonary complications. That, for instance, uh, in a fire, the leading cause of death is not the burn itself, but pulmonary complications, often from the result of smoke inhalation, and that's typically um, uh, bronchopulmonary pneumonia. We talked about cardiovascular effects of a burn injury. Certainly, there's profound third-space fluid shifts. Uh, the initially, the heart will have a stunning where you'll see a depression of cardiac output and after about 48 hours then you kind of see uh, the cardiac physiology begin to transition into a flow phase. Nutrition, often you cannot give patients the nutrition that they need um, uh, because patients will require significant protein and calorie needs. This is something that's very challenging in a child because compared to an adult, a child has significantly higher caloric and protein needs based on kilogram. And then you get into issues of being able to get the appropriate amount of protein and calories uh, with the volume um, uh, limitations when feeding a child enterally. Endocrine, uh, clearly there's alterations in our immune function. This has been a source of great interest in critical care lately regarding the adrenal axis, but also control of blood sugar. This is, the control of blood sugar is not something new uh, to burn surgeons. This is something that uh, we were sensitive to perhaps a decade before it came more vogue of recent years. Uh, we knew particularly that we had an increased rate of infection in burn patients as well as decreased skin graft take um, with uh, hyperglycemia. So what are our priorities? Now initially we're going to talk about the more major burns and then I want to kind of focus it down on some of the more um, uh, smaller burns that you may see in a community practice. But our priorities of burn care are obviously the first is save the patient's life. That doesn't require any commentary. The next is to save the patient's limbs. You know, clearly somebody who has deep third or fourth degree circumferential burns of their arms and legs, those are limb threatening injuries and we want to be able to save their limbs. Now, however, if a patient has just horribly deep burns of the lower extremities or arms from say something like electrical injury, there's no chance that the tissue is, is viable, that we're going to potentially jeopardize the function of the kidneys uh, with rhabdomyolysis. That's somebody that an amputation uh, is entirely appropriate. And that's just one of several possibilities. The next is safe function. We want to be able to establish that patient back to their functional status to the point of what they were before they got injured. Now this is a little bit of a moving target in children particularly because particularly with young children they're trying to reach different developmental milestones and when you're dealing with young children they can actually slide back from their developmental milestones so you need to try to be able to maintain them at the point they were at the point of injury and then continue to get progression so that they could keep up with kids their own age as far as attaining those different developmental milestones. The last priority that we have is cosmesis. How does the burn look? Now this may be very surprising to a lot of people because that seems to be the most obvious that the naive provider would focus on. 
But the reality is, is it does the patient no good to have a hand that's been perfectly reconstructed and grafted. It looks as good as God them, himself or herself uh, fixed the hand, but the hand doesn't work. The patient can't wrap the hand around a toy, a pencil, can't write their name because the hand is dysfunctional. This brings in the idea or the concept that burn is not all about the surgeons. Now, as a surgeon saying this, I'm at risk of losing my union card. But it does the patient no good for me as a surgeon to do a good operation technically, to have a good outcome cosmetically, but not to get the maximal amount of functional recovery. And to obtain that requires a significant amount of teamwork by the nursing staff, but also the occupational and physical therapist. They are really a linchpin in the recovery uh, of a patient from a burn injury. Now this is particularly more challenging in children because there's very few people that are actually able to do the high intensity rehabilitation in children, particularly young children in the toddler age. So who makes up a burn team? Not only on the inpatient ICU side, but also in the burn clinic. People obviously uh, in the ICU, we have uh, uh, folks uh, that myself and my colleagues that are board certified in critical care. We have critical care trauma fellows, burn fellows, nurses, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, therapists who are very important, uh, physical therapy and occupational therapy, dietitians, case managers, and social workers. The case managers and social workers, I can't say enough about, quite frankly, because think about the difference in our patients, say, than um, a, a straight-up trauma patient who's involved in a motor vehicle crash. A patient who's in a motor vehicle crash, for instance, has suffered a terrible automobile accident, but they're not homeless. They still have clothes and they're eventually able, when they get discharged, have a place to be discharged to. But if you take a family who's burnt, been burned out of their house, you may not only have an injured child, but uh, you will have a homeless family in your waiting room who may be wearing the pajamas in which they evacuated their house for. So you have to kind of deal with all of that issue as well. The other uh, issue is that burns, particularly in relationship to structural fires, is a socioeconomic disease as well. Typically, these kind of, uh, from a structure fire, are typically occurring in people who are lower socioeconomic, they're living in older homes with poor electricity or poor heating. Social workers, psychiatrists, and so forth, we have a social worker who has a background in counseling, and we screen all of our patients for issues of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and certainly uh, issues of uh, body self-image. Uh, Post-traumatic stress disorder and depression are key things that a patient may suffer, adult or child, following a burn injury. Think how difficult adolescence was for all of us, uh, and you know how I've got a 13-year-old daughter. If you haven't heard the background, I have five kids, and so you will hear them sound off sometimes during my podcast. Certainly, it's almost a cliche about the drama of a teenager getting a, a pimple. Uh, prior to a dance or a date. But imagine if you're a 13 or 14 year old trying to go uh, through uh, ju uh, junior high or high school and you've got significant scars on your arms, your legs, or perhaps even your neck and face and all of the drama uh, and uh, psychological trauma that's associated with that. So since Burns is a team sport, we typically see these folks as a team um, in clinic trying to use the resources of not only the physicians, the nurses, but also the occupational and physical therapist.
Well, now let's talk about what some of these seemingly minor complications, and I say minor in quotes, uh, that can occur with a scar. Some of them are hypertrophic scarring or keloids, which you might think would be a rather innocuous burn or innocent burn. It can actually have significant scarring uh, problems. And a large part of what happens in a burn clinic is after the wounds have closed, there's a focus put on scar management. Uh, physical and occupational therapists will use various techniques of uh, therapeutic massage, scar softening, pressure therapy with custom-fitted pressure garments and silicone um, uh, sheets to try to uh, keep the residual scar down. Contractures are a big problem and, and contractures are having the scars tighten up across the joints. And I had an occupational therapist years ago who used to tell the children scars never sleep and nothing is more further from the truth. A scar can result in a hand turning into nothing more than a useless ball. Uh, or having someone lose 15 or 20 degrees of range of motion of their elbow. The only way to really combat contractures is the first three things that we do is therapy, therapy, and therapy. Um, and if one therapy fails, then surgery is appropriate. Uh, but contractures don't need to occur if a patient's been well disciplined and educated to be compliant with a regimen of physical therapy. Uh, and this is not something that can typically happen in a standard medical pediatric practice or an emergency department. Other things are pigmentation changes, particularly in folks of uh, darker pigmentation. This can be rather distressing. Um, and neuropathic pain. Keep in mind that um, people fear pain more than they do death. And sometimes multimodal therapy with various medications, aside from the use of narcotics and some non-traditional type of medications are required to obtain control of that neuropathic pain. Well, what is neuropathic pain and what does it really originate from? The way I describe it often to patients is, is that if, if you unplug a television sh set from cable TV or whatever it is nowadays, you'll get a blue screen because basically the television is designed that in the absence of a input, uh, you know, from the cable TV or what have you, a DVD player, that to put up a blue screen. Well, your brain has a map of nerves, and when it does not get an impulse back from a particular nerve in, in, in the hand or whatever, the brain says, this cannot be good, and interprets that as pain. Um, the example that I use frequently is that if you if you ever watched Cops, and I'm embarrassed to say that I watched that show for years, and it shows perhaps that I'm a true redneck, but um, you would know that if somebody, a police officer, went to the scene uh, of, say, a domestic disturbance, and the dispatcher said, you know, check up, are you okay? And that police officer doesn't check up, the dispatcher is going to say, we have problems, and it's going to respond by sending half the police force there. Well, you're your brain does a similar thing if it says nerve and right finger check up and that nerve in the right finger cannot respond back because with an impulse of some degree because it's been destroyed by a deep burn injury it perceives that as pain now narcotics will take away that perception of pain like turning up the radio of your car with a bad muffler but neuropathic medications will actually help to work with that pain. The other thing is the occupational therapist that we see these kids with will do things like desensitization training by using things of different textures and different temperatures and basically kind of reprogram or remap that the peripheral uh, sensory nerves. The other issue, particularly with children, it's problematic, is that with poor pain control, the research has shown that it will result in behavioral problems uh, down the road. 
Uh, so clearly if we can avoid problems with behavior and problems with learning because we are not doing well with pain control, that's clearly something that's avoidable. We try to work often with child life to trick, particularly control the pain. Things such as virtual reality has also been shown to be very effective in decreasing children's narcotic requirements and make them more compliant with therapy. Now let's turn to some of the more uh, functional aspects of, um, of uh, taking care of a critically injured child and as with any emergency you have focus initial on the ABCs. Now it's important to remember that every step is more difficult in burn care than it is in trauma. The airway could be burned, trying to secure uh, the tongue may be burned, you could have significant airway edema, if you get the tube in and when you get it in, how do you secure it, if you tape it to the face probably going to fall out because the face is not going to stay on because of the, the burns. You may have difficulty with breathing because of carbonaceous debris or soot in the lungs. You may have circumferential burns of the chest that may make movement of the chest difficult and result in a poor pulmonary compliance. Getting things like peripheral access could be very difficult uh, because of burns of the extremities. And we have a podcast on here where we talk about the use of interosseous lines. Don't forget about the benefit of the intraosseous lines. It's very easy, it's very reproducible, and it doesn't require a significant skill set to get a reliable line using intraosseous infusions. Once you've established the ABCs, then we get to the idea of what's secondary burn care. And this is rather difficult. And, and what we do here is we estimate the burn size, the burn depth, and then we go for the formulas for fluid resuscitation and pain management. The rule of nines really doesn't work well with children. I had a fellow several years ago and, and he said that, you know, children aren't little adults and anybody who does any pediatric care would certainly agree with that and people would start saying amen brother and then he would finish the punchline. He says they're little adults with really big heads. I don't know whether he meant that just to be provocative or he, he was looking at the Lund-Browder charts a lot. And a Lund-Browder chart is a table or diagram in which the surface area of uh, a child of different ages is broken down and then you can do a burn map and calculate out burn ages and that's really the Lund-Browder chart is really the best thing to use in a child because we know that uh, a child of one year of age is, has a much as a proportionally larger size head than a child of, of three and, uh, and of six that the, the proportion of the head to the extremities changes with age the next thing we get into is fluid resuscitation and there's a variety of formulas and I in one of the other podcasts about um, thermal injury and there's another podcast about fluid creep we talk about the various formulas in great depth and I don't want to go into that here but there are some significant differences in children and children if you look most adults are, are very cylindrical but children are mostly spherical uh, particularly as they're younger and being a sphere they have a different volume to surface area ratio and they could certainly lose more heat more quickly but also increase their evaporative losses so they're going to need a little bit more fluid for for that the other thing about children is they have very limited glycogen stores um, and so it'd be very easy in the face of profound stress like a burn injury for them to develop hypoglycemia for these reasons that we will do a Parkland formula at roughly 2 to 4 cc's per kilo per TVSA burn. We'd like to give half of that in the first 8 hours from the time of injury and then we give the other half 16 hours 
the remaining 16 hours. Now, a great board question that people like to ask is that first half is delivered from the time of injury. So if the child gets no fluid for the first two hours, that means you're giving half of that fluid in six hours. In addition to the Parkland resuscitation, in children, particularly we're talking about young children less than say the ages of 10 or 12, we also run maintenance IV fluids and that maintenance IV fluid needs to contain dextrose because of the limited glycogen stores of the liver of the child. The other issue that I consider secondary burn care is pain management. Pain management, pain management, pain management. Pain is a four-letter word. We need to assure that our, our patients, particularly children, are not suffering needlessly because of our insecurities about the safety of the narcotic or someone's ability to um, manage an airway. Um, certainly those are, are very paramount issues is that we don't want to lose an airway. But we need to make sure that if we have, say, a first um, a pre-hospital provider, what have you, who may be, be caring for these kind of children, that they have the appropriate training to manage an airway uh, such that a patient is not suffering in pain. And the reality is, is most of these children, if you give them some form of narcotic, are not going to uh, have respiratory arrest. Now, when it comes to narcotic management uh, in a burn, I actually like fentanyl over morphine. The reason why I think fentanyl is a, a safer medication is histamine is associated with, excuse me, morphine is associated with some histamine release, and that can result in some vasodilatation and some hypotension uh, in a child that may be just marginally compensated. No burn talk would be a burn talk without talking about the various degrees of burns. First, second, or third degree burn are, are the uh, um, uh, are the um, uh, nomenclature typically used to describe burns. Burn providers will typically refer things as superficial partial thickness and full thickness, which are first, second, and third degree burns. The first degree burns are typically described as, as red and painful, much like a sunburn. They definitely don't need surgery. But particularly in a child, some of that child's been out on a boat all day, um, and they come in and they're, they're bright red, I will actually admit that child. And the, re and the reason why I admit that child is they typically have a general malaise. They're dehydrated. They're not taking well. Uh, PO well. They may be a little bit uh, hyperthermic, and, and that results in a little bit of an ileus, and again, so fl oral fluid resuscitation is not a good option. And so, I, like I said, I will admit those patients. Now, the second um, type of second-degree burn, and, and they're blistering, they're painful, and they have a glistening wet wound bed. The question that I get asked more uniformly than anything is, do you pop the blisters or you don't pop the blisters? I pop the blisters. And the reason why I pop the blisters, and, and there's good evidence to suggest this, the first of all is some people will say, don't pop the blister, it's a biological dressing. Well, it isn't, because the skin that's blistered is not normal. We use biological dressings such as cadaver and pig skin because it acts as a barrier uh, for loss of water vapor, it acts as a barrier for loss of heat, and acts as a biological barrier for microbes. A blister is not going to provide those advantages. The other issue is people have looked at blister fluid. There are some pro-inflammatory type uh, materials in there. And that blister is typically under pressure, and it's putting pressure on that wound bed, which isn't very comfortable. 
The other thing is, is that people have a blister and they don't pop it and or open it up and what do they do is they want to put a topical antibiotic like sylvadine on it. Well, you're putting sylvadine on a blister. The blister is a quarter of an inch. Where you want that antibiotic to be is at the wound bed and that is under the blister. So again, you're not delivering your topical antibiotic where it needs to go. The third thing is, is any kind of time you have standing fluid in the body, whether it's in a blister or the abdomen or what have you, it's really not a welcome sight. It's just a, a, a problem for potential development of infection. So we pop the blisters. There, we settled that. Now, the next is third degree or full thickness burns, which actually can also be fourth degree burns. They're leathery, they're white to char, they're dead tissues. Patients will have pain. Patients will have pain. Patients will have pain. If patients who don't have with third degree burns don't have pain, then walk into a burn ICU and look at the large amounts of narcotics these patients are on with third degree burns over 20, 30, 40, 50% of their body. Now, it is true that it, you can destroy some of the nerve endings, but we've already talked about some of the issues of neuropathic pain. The other issue is, is that areas of third degree burn will have areas of second degree burn around them. So don't be lulled into the fact that uh, you know um, patients don't require narcotics for a third degree burn because third degree burns don't hurt. That's just not accurate. What do you do when you first see a patient? Well, the first thing to do is stop the burning process. Seems pretty self-evident. And what I'll typically refer to is the IABCs because I'm a former paramedic. And that is, first thing, are you safe? If the patient has chemical burns or something along those lines, uh, you need to make sure that you're not going to be exposed to the burning reagent that, that caused the burns. If you're providing pre-hospital care, clearly you don't want to be providing, you know, um, care, you know, 10 feet from the fire. You want to move the patient back to safety. Then stop the burning process or cool the burn. Now this is an, another source of great uh, debate. What does that mean to cool the burn? My preference, and I would tell you that the preference of the vast majority of burn surgeons that I know and collaborate with around the United States, is that means room temperature water. Uh, that will certainly cool the burn. Now, part of it is, is that we deal with very large patients with very large burns, say 20, 30%, sometimes you know, 70, 80% of their bodies. And putting somebody in ice will eventually result in hypothermia. There are those people who believe that ice is appropriate for burns. I haven't seen literature to suggest that I think that that's appropriate for burns. Uh, I'm parsing my words a little bit because I have to write a position paper on this for a scientific society and I need to actually declare that I need to be open-minded but my bias is, is I actually prefer not using ice. People say well ice feels good and, and truly ice does feel good. Um, it does provide some degree of analgesia. The reality of it is is ice, if I had my choice between morphine and ice I'm going to choose morphine. Gentlemen, next time you have a wife who's in labor or a girlfriend, um, you know, she is, is laboring, you can either ask the anesthesiologist to insert an epidural catheter or offer her some ice, and I don't recommend you offer her ice. I, I think that would be perhaps dangerous for your health. And as we know from college, a lot of things that we do that feel good, um, don't necessarily uh, mean that they're good for us. The example that I'll typically use is when you look at a burn, we have zones of uh, burns, and when you put 
like uh, zones of burns around similar to like what we have a heart attack a central necrosis and around that area of central necrosis is a basically a penundrum area much like you would have in a stroke of tissues or or, or cells that are at risk um, they're they're viable but if there's a decrease in oxygen delivery, those cells will die. And what do we do? Well, we try to put the patient on oxygen, we give them antiplatelet agents, and we control the heart rate because we know that by controlling the heart rate, we decrease the myocardial oxygen consumption. We would not take a patient who's having acute coronary syndrome and put them on isoprel to increase their heart rate from 80 to 130 because that would basically convert those, those at-risk cells to dead cells. Well, let's imagine you've got your hand and you put your hand in a bucket of water uh, and that water has ice in it. Well, your hand is going to get very cold and what happens to those small blood vessels in your fingers? Well, they vasoconstrict because they're trying to preserve heat. What happens to the blood flow uh, in the fingers? Well, it decreases. Well, let's switch back to the burn. The burn has an area of tissue in the central portion called the zone of necrosis. This is the area of third degree burn. Around the zone of necrosis is a zone called the zone of stasis. This means the blood flow is stagnant. If we are able to reestablish blood flow and oxygen delivery in the zone of stasis, we will improve oxygen delivery and those vulnerable cells will remain viable. Hence the burn will not get deeper and the burn will not get larger. The problem with putting ice on a burn, at least this is what is theorized by every burn surgeon that I know is that that application of ice will result in vasoconstriction of those blood vessels, decreased oxygen delivery, and conversion of those viable cells to dead cells resulting in a larger and deeper burn. This is debated and this is contentious. Other things that can result in a burn evolving is poor resuscitation. Not giving the patient enough fluid and being dehydrated will do it. Too much resuscitation will result in excessive edema. That is poor for a burn. Well, how is that? Well, if you imagine you've got a capillary and oxygen can only diffuse a certain extent or a certain distance from that capillary. Well, as you result in edema and enlarge the volume of the tissue, you don't grow more blood vessels and that will result in um, uh, the burn evolving. Circumferential burns, we'll talk about that, as well as uh, what I call the poor protoplasm burn, which is typically not the child, but the patient who is 70 years old, steroid dependent, COPD, poorly compliant diabetic with a hemoglobin A1C of 10, uh, smoking on oxygen. That's not typically a pediatric patient. Now let's talk about what are these circumferential burns. What's the problem with a circumferential burn? Well, the example that I'll use often when I talk about circumferential burns is the hot dog on the grill that you've just cooked too long. Now this may seem rather distasteful because we're talking about patients being burned, but it makes the point is that if you overcook a hot dog, what happens? Well, the, the meat of the hot dog expands and it basically tears the casing and the hot dog kind of just enlarges and explodes on the grill or the microwave. That is not too dissimilar to what happens, say, if somebody gets a deep burn to their arm. But the difference is the casing or the skin of the person in this case actually shrinks. It contracts as it gets burned. So what that does is you've got contraction of the burn 
around the arm. At the same time, you've got expansion and swelling of the underlying tissue. Now, let's keep in mind that in a patient who is not dehydrated, who is normal volemic, the central venous pressure, not the peripheral venous pressure, but the central venous pressure is typically, say, 6 or 7 millimeters of mercury. Let's make a patient dehydrated. That takes your central venous pressure very low, say 0 to 2 or 2 to 3. Um, and if you go out the periphery, the periphery, even less. So now we've got this swelling inside the arm. You've got swelling inside a confined space. And what does that do? It puts more pressure on the veins. Well, what is it? Now you've got a venous tourniquet. What does that do to the swelling? It makes the swelling more rapid. Then what does that do? It generates enough pressure, pressure to eventually it actually occludes the artery. So now you've got a limb-threatening injury. Um, the um, best way to deal with an a um, uh, circumferential um, uh, burn is an escherotomy. These are not of of surgical procedures, not terribly challenging to do, but I would tell you that there you can create some significant injury to the patient if the incisions are not put in the correct position. You can cause injuries to, to significant nerves. Uh, I've seen people put escherotomies where there is no burn. That's clearly a problem. Um, and uh, we typically will do this with uh, electrocautery when we can. The um, one thing that you need to be mindful of is that there are situations where using electrocautery is bad, and that's typically a patient who has had gasoline on them, uh, and then you're doing it with a cold knife. Switching gears one more time are electrical burns. Electrical burns can be very misleading. They can actually create rather small contact wounds. Uh, um, some people will call them entrance and exit wounds, but depending on the current, uh, it could go either direction. And this is where people really get themselves into a lot of trouble, is that they see a small burn on a finger and a small burn on their foot or the other finger and think, well, this is really nothing. Um, you would never judge the damage of a gunshot wound by saying, oh, look, it's just a tiny little hole from a 22 caliber weapon directly over the precordium. It's not that big of a deal. Well, electrical injuries, I, I would approach with a similar style as I would a gunshot wound because the electricity goes in, wreaks significant havoc, burns the patient literally inside out. So the tissue destruction is progressive and the destruction is in excess of what's originally apparent. Even when we go in and explore these patients and open up their arms and, and do carpal tunnel releases, there's been very good scientific research that shows that the tissue is destructive. Much like we would have a patient who has mesenteric ischemia, we would operate on them today, leave what we thought was viable, and say we're coming back tomorrow because what looks viable today could be necrotic tomorrow. We know from electrical burns is that what looks viable today could be necrotic tomorrow. We think that may be related to apoptosis or microvascular changes uh, to the blood vessels feeding the muscles. Patients could have other complications such as ruptured tympanic membranes, spine fractures, long bone fractures, and I think we've talked about this in other uh, podcasts as well as seizures. A classic uh, injury that we see, electrical injury in children, is the child chewing on an extension cord and they get an electrical burn right on the corner of their mouth. This could be very problematic. And the reason why is there's an artery that goes right on the corner of the mouth. And that artery, when eroded, can actually result in some significant bleeding. And depending on what book you read, 
they say that you know you should tell the parents well you know this you could go home with this but you know if if the child bleeds you know pinch the pinch the blood vessel in the mouth it's bleeding and, and come back to the emergency department I'll typically admit these patients for observation trying to give one of my five kids augmentin for a any kind of illness is like something out of a Stephen King movie and I couldn't imagine telling a parent to just simply pinch the bleeding blood vessel in the corner of the mouth and return back to the emergency department. The other really big problem with these wounds is that uh, they can actually stenose down creating what's called a microostia and that is a is a bad problem um, and it can result in significant limitation of the range. Other problems include smoke inhalation. We have another podcast on that. I would refer you to that, uh, and particularly with what some of the breakthroughs are in regards to cyanide uh, treatment. Um, the cyanide kit hasn't been approved in the United States for children. It doesn't necessarily, you know, there's, um, but it has been used with success in uh, Europe. Lastly, what I want to talk about, which is a very big thing in child abuse and something that really bothers me quite a bit, is 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 maltreatment of children or child abuse. Will Smith, uh, in uh, one of his movies, said, "We see things you need not see. We be places you need not be." Uh, actually, that's a lyric from Men in Black. And being a university professor of a fine Southern institution like Vanderbilt, I need to be able to quote literature. I'm sorry, it's not Walt Whitman or Shakespeare. But uh, the instance of child abuse, when you look o- across the board, up to 10% of children under the age of 5 in an emergency department have traumatic injuries. There are estimated to be roughly 2,000 deaths per year in the United States. 2,000 deaths. That's a couple of 747s. Not once, not twice, every year. Um, I'm sorry, it's five 747s. So um, that's, that's just mind-boggling to me. Um, 20% of pediatric admissions to a burn unit uh, are the result of maltreatment, uh, abuse, or neglect. Usually the result in scald burns or contact burns, and it's usually toddlers. Mike Peck wrote an article uh, several years ago and identified various risk factors of um, um, children in regards to the development of abuse. Some of it is making the diagnosis in regards to the exam, making sure your documentation is very clean. One of the things that we do, because we are a burn center, is we have the ability to photo document just about everything, and we take dozens and dozens of photographs, and we're able to submit those to our electronic medical record. Uh, Evidence of injury, current or previous, are there old bruises, where are they at, what are the colors, are there old scars, obviously doing a baby gram and getting an ophthalmology, are the findings consistent with the explanation, you know, if if they're telling you that a seven-month-old pulled up a hot tea off a table, that just doesn't make sense, developmentally, the child isn't doing that kind of activity. what are the patterns of the inflicted injuries? There are patterns of injury that are absolutely pathognomonic for child abuse, uh, particularly scald injuries and certain contact injuries. Does the explanation, you know, some of these people tell us things that are just ridiculous. And does the story make sense uh, with science and does it follow the laws of physics? You want to look at the pattern of the burn. Where is the child burned? But also you want to look at the lines of the burn and look at where the child isn't burned. Are they burned on their leg but their their flexion creases behind their knee or in their hip are spared? And try to connect the dots 
of these burns. Connect the burns of the lower arm with the upper arm by closing the arm and that will provide you the position in which the child was at at the time of injury. Now the reality is is that if you don't look at a lot of burns or you're not doing a lot of maltreatment of children cases you're not going to be very good at documenting these types of things. You may be very capable of dealing with these child's injuries but keep in mind that you're also building a forensic case and if you see four kids a year with burns, do you want to be the one on a stand making the difference between a felonious child abuse case or not because you didn't make a consultation uh, to uh, a, a, a maltreatment specialist or to a burn specialist. Uh, immersion burns, this is what we typically see, the most common type of inflicted burn injury. It's exposure to hot water typically as punishment related to stooling or toilet training. And these forcible immersions in a tub of hot water, you can get, um, the, the child almost gets a Easter egg type appearance. So when we photograph these children, and again for the sake of juries and, and, and the medical records, we will put the child in the position uh, that they were in at the time of injury. And we typically do all of our pediatric wound care under deep sedation or under ketamine. Um, and we look at areas of the sharply demarcated areas. Like I said before, sparing flexion creases um, will basically to tell you the child was in, held in a particular position. The child was in a defensive position prior to them getting hurt. They knew they were going to be injured. Uh, with some of the cold cast iron tubs, they can push the child down on the cast iron tub and the cast iron will stay cool even though the water is hot. And so you can get a central sparing on the area of the buttocks or the area where the child was held down. You want to, when you interview the, the family or the parents, uh, you want to do it separately. Um, uh, and uh, at least that's been our practice, and determine the circumstances um, uh, of what led to it. Uh, recall all unrelated events. Um, um, try to be very open-ended. Let them do most of the talking. If you're talking to your law enforcement, they're going to get scene data, and they're going to try to go to the scene and, and not only collect photographs, but also water temperature. Um, you know, we all remember the, the, uh, the old lady who sued McDonald's because she spilled hot coffee. You know, water temperature, the duration of exposure in the water temperature is going to determine the burn. Remember, the depth of a burn is determined by the depth, the temperature of the water and the um, um, duration of exposure. Well, here's something to think about uh, when they look at hot water temperature. And hopefully you'll do your anticipatory guidance and tell people to keep their water temperatures about 120 degrees. But if the water temperature is 33 degrees, it takes about 15 seconds for that to cause a burn. At 156 degrees, one second to cause a burn. So this is some of the data that gets to be very helpful. Uh, the other thing is, are there flow marks? If a child was accidentally put in hot water, accidentally turned on the hot water, they will try to escape. And you will see uh, splash marks. If they pull something down on them, you'll see the trail marks as the water run down, run down their leg. You won't see burns that look like somebody pulled on a sock. Uh, we call I like call a stocky net deformity uh, type burn. So, so those are the types of things that you're looking at. The other type of burn we see typically are contact burns. This is the second most common type of inflicted injury, and typically uh, we'll see it in form of branding. It could be a hot iron, it could be a curling iron, it could be a heated up coat hanger. Um, the things that we have seen uh, would nauseate you and bring you to tears. Um, now keep in mind that let's think about an accidental dropping of a curling iron, for instance. 
most all of our surfaces are rounds we're all round some of us are more round than others but we're all round whether it's you're talking about my thigh my abdomen my arm my head those are all curvilinear um, surfaces so if I drop something that's hot you're gonna see irregular margins and uneven depth of the burn because the burn will hit something of that round surface and deflect and you'll typically see small contacts for inflicted injuries, you have to have prolonged contact, and you're going to see sharply demarcated deep burns. Uh, you will see the holes of the curling iron where the steam comes out. You will see Hamilton Beach written backwards. I kid you not, uh, of the clothing iron, uh, sharply demarcated edge, indicating that this was an intentional injury. Uh, again, mind-boggling that these things happen, but they happen with regularity. Cigarette burns are another very common form of contact injury. Not only do they occur in open areas, but again, keep in mind that their SOB parents also know that teachers and social workers are looking at these kids. So you have to look in addition to the obvious areas, things like the hands and so forth, uh, are the areas under the armpits, uh, under the hairline, uh, certainly under the clothing, looking for these small circular burns and try to get good accurate measurements of those burns. Perhaps lastly is, is what are some of the things that we're doing for treatment? Things like Silvadine and Whirlpool. Most burn centers, uh, my, the last Whirlpool or Hubbard tank that Vanderbilt owned is literally in a cow pasture here in Tennessee. Most places are using uh, non-immersion type of hydrotherapy to keep the burn wounds. We're very heavy at using deep sedation. Uh, pain is a four-letter word. P children do not need to be crying. And we practice issues of safe zones. Um, if a child is hospitalized, we will not start IVs in the room. We'll certainly not do wound care in the, wound, in, in the room because we need to practice the safe zone. By collaborating with child life, you can actually have good uh, outcomes with distraction therapy. Silvadine is, a, is an appropriate topical antibiotic, but silvadine needs to be applied once or twice daily. And that's a big deal, particularly in an outpatient setting. We're able to use in burn centers, we have silver-based dressings, and there's a variety of different ones on the market that elaborate silver ion continuously for a period of three to five to up to seven days. Now, silver sulfadiazine or silvadine uses silver ion also as its antimicrobial element. You can go back to silver nitrate before we had silvadine. Again, silver. Um, so the nice thing about using these silver-based dressings is that we can transition these kids very quickly to an outpatient setting where we could put on a long-acting silver dressing like, um, I don't even want to say the names, but something like an, like an Acticote um, and have that burn dressing on there for a period of three to five days, have the parents come back, we can sedate the child, change the dressing, and the parents, as we like to say, are for hugs and kisses, not for uh, painful dressing changes. We also have other surgical elements, things like um, dermal implants that reduce uh, scarring uh, and provide not only good functional but good cosmetic outcomes. That is the conclusion of this talk on pediatric burns. It's a rather large topic, and like I said, it was designed typically for our providers and emergency departments and pediatric emergency departments. Uh, this is the podcast, IC Rounds. My name's Jeff Guy. The, uh, my home webpage, I've got several webpages, but the one I use for teaching is www.burndoc.com. Other past episodes of IC Rounds can be found at the podcast website, which is icrounds.com. Uh, there are been a lot of great articles 
that have been in the literature lately, and many of you have sent me articles that, that you think are, are valuable, and they are on things like steroids, uh, the, benefit, the, the, the use of steroids and sepsis, whether they help or they don't help, uh, some of the issues of hypoglycemia associated with insulin protocols. Uh, there was an article just recently published in Lancet on narcotic interruption, and uh, it's a benefit on patients who are on mechanical ventilators. Just some of the topics that are in the queue and will be coming in a forthcoming podcast. My name's Jeff Guy. Thanks for listening.